0: Um, My name is Chad. I get to fill in for Brian Haas, our lead pastor, when he's away, and so he's away, so you got me. So if you're new and this is your very first time here, um, let me invite you to come back next week uh, to be around Brian. He'd love to meet you, shake your hand, get to know you. Um, But if you're here for a while and you've been around, and especially if you've been around for the past month or so, uh, you'll realize that we're in a teaching series in the book of Mark. And uh, we're just kind of walking through Mark chapter by chapter, sometimes passage through passage and verse by verse and, uh, on Sunday mornings. And so we're just excited to walk through this and get to uh, Mark chapter 16. It's going to kind of culminate at uh, Easter. And so we're, just, we're excited about walking through Mark. And one of the things that we're doing is we've walked through Mark is we're wanting to make sure we're doing that together. So if you have not yet, um, you can... Uh, Text this number or that word to that number. You can use the QR code and you signed up for our weekly devotion. And a reminder usually comes on Mondays about 10 o'clock as a reminder to read um, through the book of Mark. So we're just taking it slowly. We're reading through each chapter by chapter, just kind of, you know, grinding through it and looking at it. And uh, as we look at it this morning, we're going to be in Mark chapter 9. And so if you did read forward, you saw in Mark chapter 9 kind of where we're going, Um, And we're going to be in the latter part of Mark chapter 9. But let me just kind of walk back a little bit and remind us, kind of like, this is a tipping point, actually, in Mark. As Mark's writing this tipping point, Mark 9, and really kind of the last part of of chapter 8. And so Mark's um, chapters 1 through 8, what he's dealing with is the person of Jesus, So we see Jesus, we see the Messiah, the Son of God, the Son of Man. We see his power and his authority. We see some of the teachings of Jesus. But really this tipping point is what's happening from Mark chapter um, 8 forward and going through 9 to 16. Is what's going on is we begin to see Jesus and his teaching. And it's more around the preparation of what's to come with his death, burial, and resurrection. And so, as that tipping point happens, you'll see that throughout Mark chapter 9 through 16. We're still going to see some of the power and authority of Jesus, but you'll see more of the teaching of Jesus. And that's where we're going to be this morning. So, if you did read forward, you saw in Mark chapter 9, verses 1 through 13, the transfiguration of Jesus. Um, Transfiguration, a remarkable event that really did point to the divinity of Jesus that James and John and Peter saw and experienced with Jesus. And then as you move from Mark uh, 9, 14 through 29, what you see is uh, this divinity and this power, or this power and authority of Jesus again in the healing of this little boy and the belief of his father. And so as we get to verse 30, where we're going to pick up today, let me just kind of go back and remind us of something. So Brian began Mark chapter 1. And what he looked at and reminded us of is really why did Jesus come? What was the purpose of Jesus coming? Now, many of us would say that Jesus came to die for our sins. That is true. But Jesus also came for another purpose. And alluded to it, Jesus alluded to it in Mark chapter 1. Let's look at it on the screen. If you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Mark chapter 9. Uh, but let me remind you, Mark 1, 15 says, The time promised by God has come at last he announced. And this is Jesus. So he said, hey, there's this time. I came for a reason, spent 30 years prepping, but the time has come. And he said this, the kingdom of God is near. Repent of your sins and believe the good news. Now there were prophets, there were preachers, there were individuals who were calling people to repentance, to walk in a right way, but none had come and said, there is this new kingdom. And what Jesus was doing is he was ushering in a new kingdom, a kingdom that was upside down, a kingdom that was counterintuitive. It was countercultural. It was counter-religious. And Jesus came to usher in this new kingdom. And that's what we see as Jesus' purpose and reason for coming, and what you see in Mark as Mark's displaying all the power and authority of Jesus and what Jesus was able to do as being divinity, as God and man. And then we get to the, the, the power of Jesus' teaching and this new kingdom teaching that Jesus was bringing forward. And so let's look at it. Mark chapter 9, we're going to start in verse 30 leaving the region, and so is the region meaning probably Caesarea Philippi, as we see from the transfiguration, and he's leaving that region, and he's walking like southeast, he's going southwest from that region, and he's going through Galilee, and so he's going back into his area where he knew, so he's going back into Galilee, and Jesus didn't want anyone to know that he was there. Now, that's something that we've seen in previous uh, chapters of Mark. You kind of keep it quiet, keep it on the download. We're going to see more of that. He didn't want anyone to know that he was there. For he wanted to spend more time with his disciples and teach them. And he said to them this. The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of his enemies. He will be killed. But three days later, he will rise from the dead. Circle this. They didn't understand, underline it, circle it. They didn't understand what he was saying, however, and they were afraid to ask him what he meant. And so Jesus, he's walking out, he's, he's making sure that they understand. And there's a couple of things here that I just want to point out. One, he wanted to spend more time with them. He wanted to prepare them. He wanted to make sure that they were getting this kingdom truth. And so as he was spending more time with them, he was preparing them for what was to come. That the servant was going to suffer. And so that's what Jesus was doing. They didn't understand. They weren't in tune with this, all right? So look at it in verse 33. After they arrived at Capernaum and settled in a house, and most people would say this is Peter's home, Jesus asked his disciples, What were you discussing out on the road? But... Circle this, and underline this. They didn't answer. So previous conversation, they didn't understand. They're looking at each other going, man, I have no idea what he's talking about. He's going to die? Who's going to die? Who's going to be raised again? Now he gets to a question, and they look at him, and they didn't answer. Because they had been arguing about which of them was the greatest. All right? So this is great. Just think about it. Have you ever asked that question? Have you ever asked your qu- a question of your, you know, somebody, and you just kind of get that blank stare, kind of like right now, you know, like, like I mean, you've asked a question, like a spouse, a friend, your kid, and it's a question that you feel like, man, they heard me. They they heard, but they just blankly stare at you, like, mm. like you ever experienced that? Yeah, you have. It's like, they don't want to answer. They don't want to, maybe they didn't understand fully what the question was, but, and then there's times where you know that they, like, hey, have you done your homework? And they just stare right through you. It's those kind of things. And and here's what's going on with this group, is they heard him. They just didn't want to answer this time. They understood, but they just didn't want to answer. Why didn't they want to answer? Because they were arguing about who was the greatest See, here they are. I mean, think about this. Here they are. They're just kind of, just kind of imagine what's going on. Is when he asked that question, these guys are looking around going, I ain't saying anything. You say it. me. I'm I'm not saying a word. And Well, you say No, I'm not going to say it. Dude, come on, man. Like, he knows everything that we're thinking anyway, so why don't we just go ahead and say it? And that's what these guys were doing. They were trying to figure out, like, all right, all right, let's not say anything. Let's just let it ride. And see, the, the thing is, is they weren't arguing. Again, they weren't arguing about how to be great. In fact, I think if they were arguing about how to be great, we wouldn't be having this conversation. I don't think Jesus would be talking about it. And what they were doing is they, were, they weren't even arguing about how to be greater. You see, being greater, like, hey, how can we be a greater disciple? How can I be a greater man? How can I be a greater person, a greater human? I mean, that's fine. What they were arguing about is how to be the great Est. And so when you begin that, you begin to have the goat conversation, don't you? Who's the greatest of all time? And that's what they were doing because they were jockeying and they were looking at it like, all right, positionally, like here I am, and so I'm superior to you. And they were comparing, well, I did this, and well, I got to see this. Well, you went with him there, but I went with him there. And he didn't take you, he took me. And so they were looking at it through that lens. And here they are, they're arguing about who is the greatest. A bunch of third graders is nanner, nanner, nanner is what they were doing. And I would say Jordan is the greatest of all time. Just come at me. So in this new kingdom, Jesus is pointing out and he's making it just real. He's like, Jesus is not looking for the greatest, but he is looking for greatness. You see, sometimes we get confused here at this passage and we're like, well, we shouldn't be great. No, absolutely, we should be great because he came for you and I to be great. You see, I think there's something we have to look at and we have to make sure God will not allow us to define greatness by how much money that we have, by the title, and this this is just real life, by the title that we have at work, by maybe the accomplishments that we have at work, he won't allow us to define greatness by the neighborhood that we live in or the size house that we live in or the, the, the car that we drive or our, our IQ. He's not going to let us define greatness by our social status or how many follows and likes that we get. God loves us way too much to allow us to define that to define us in our greatness. But he wants us to be great. In fact, he has built greatness within all of us. When we were created, we were created in the very image of God. You have the image of God, so God doesn't want you to reflect anything other than greatness. When you reflect something other than greatness, you're not reflecting God. So God wants you to be great. But these cats were arguing about who is going to be the greatest, He wants you to be great. He wants you to be a great leader. He wants you to be a great student, a great parent, a great musician, a great friend. He wants you to be a great son or a great daughter. He wants you to be a great employee. He wants you to be a great athlete, a great influence. The issue, however, is this, as one theologian pointed out. The issue is this. It's when you cross the line from wanting to be great to wanting to be known as great is the problem. Did you catch that? Being great is not the problem. It's when you cross the line wanting to be known as great is the problem. Because all that does is it brings in this whole attitude, of, or not attitude, but this whole idea of emptiness. It's self-serving. There's just nothing there. David Platt, a, a, a pastor, up in Washington, D.C., he says it this way. Worldly greatness, and I think it's on the screen, worldly greatness equals superior, superiority above others and acclaim from others. That's worldly greatness. See, when we strive to be great, trying to gain an edge over someone else, we live for the applause of those individuals. And what we do is we elevate ourselves above someone else at the expense of that person And man, what that delivers is emptiness. It delivers a, 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 oh, I've got it all together, but there's just nothing there. It's a shell. And that's not the kingdom that Jesus brought in. What Jesus brought in was a paradoxical kingdom. What Jesus ushered in was a paradoxical kingdom kingdom. And so what he did is just kind of think, he's let this hang, this question hang in silence. And so the blank stares are there. And then he follows up with this. Look at it in verse 35. He said, he sat down, called the 12 disciples over to him. And he said this, whoever wants to be first must take last place and be the servant of everyone else. All right? That's Paradox. Meaning this, it's contrary to expectation or opinion. That's what the paradox is. So Jesus offers up this. See, we're taught that if we want to finish first, guess what we've got to do? We've got to scratch and claw. We've got to run people over. We've got to pull people down. We've got to demean them. We've got to start a rumor mill. We've got to be unlike anybody else to be able to finish first. We've got to be unlike what you were intended, what your intended purpose was. And by no means would we ever serve anyone else as we're trying to get to first place. And so Jesus, what he was teaching was paradox. It was something unique. It was contrary to the received opinion of the day or the, or the, or the idea that, man, this is what is true. And so what Jesus looked at, and if you think about it, 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 it there's tons of other scriptures and other points of where Jesus is pointing out. There's other paradoxes. I mean, his claim to be Messiah was certainly contrary to received opinion. The claim that he was the son of God and the son of man was this whole fact. It was a statement that was made uh, that was seemingly contradictory, but it was also true. And so there was these paradoxes. Jesus himself was paradoxical. Meaning this, he was not the normal or usual kind. And so his teaching reflected that you go back you think about Jesus how Jesus arrived on the scene so Jesus son of God sitting at the right hand of God in heaven and what we know from Philippians chapter 2 if you want to see it on the screen he did this Jesus instead he gave up his divine privileges he took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being When he appeared in human form for those 30 years until he came to the point where he humbled himself in obedience to God and he died a criminal's death on the cross. See, Jesus, the Messiah, left heaven, the accoutrements of heaven, all that heaven offered, all of the privileges that he had in his divinity, and he came as man to the chaos of this world. You see, Jesus arrived differently. Jesus lived differently. Jesus taught differently. All in an effort for us to see that, experience that, so we can live differently. We are called to live contrary to expectation. Last week, we looked at a verse in Mark 8.35, and it said this. If you want to try to hang on to your life, well, you have to lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake and for the sake of the good news, you're going to save it. And so it's just like, you know, like, all right, it's slowing down the brain here. So I have to give it up. Yeah, Brian said, hey, if you want to, you have to death your life in order to gain life. And that's so different. That's counterintuitive. It's countercultural. It's counterreligious. God's kingdom is different. And that's what Jesus was ushering in this different kingdom. In fact, when Jesus was arrested and he was taken before Pilate and Pilate was questioning him, Jesus said this in John 18, 36. He said, my kingdom is not an earthly kingdom. He's looking at Pilate saying, "Uh, this is not right. It's different, my guy. If it were, my followers would fight to keep me from being handed over to the Jewish leaders. And then he says, my kingdom is not of this world God's kingdom is different down is up last is first poor is rich broken is whole death is gain weak is strong losing is finding slaves are free in God's kingdom it's different and Jesus was bringing this kingdom in and I don't know about you but that is an inviting kingdom I think about that, and that is so different than what this world offers. It makes me want to say, I'm a part of that. Man, that is inviting to me, and that's what Jesus was wanting to invite others into that kingdom. So as Jesus was teaching, he wanted to make sure that these disciples knew that, and so he just kind of leaned in. He pressed in a little bit more and provided them with this application, this idea that, hey, if you want to be first, and you better be last, and you better be serving. If you ever want to be first. And so he leaned into this application. And what does he do? Look at it in verse 36. Then he pulled a little child among them. So just think. They're in this little tiny room. this little living space. The disciples are gathered around. It's a little child running about. And so he just pulls this little child. And he does this. Taking the child in his arms. Meaning he embraced. That isn't an embrace. It is a hug. So Jesus seated seated here. And he just brings up this little child. And he says, anyone who welcomes a little child like this, meaning this embrace, brings them close on my behalf or in my name, welcomes me. And anyone who welcomes me, welcomes not only me, but also the father who sent me. So Jesus took this child to show that the Messiah, the son of man, the son of God is willing to take the least of these into his care. See, Jesus, here he is in his divinity. In in his mission, he embraced the weakest to prove that someone with the greatest mission and very little time should still take the time to serve and show compassion to the most vulnerable. Let me just say that again. Jesus, in all of his divinity, who had the greatest mission He embraced the weakest to prove that he has the time. Him, God, has the time for us to see that we should take the time to embrace, to serve the most vulnerable. And that's what he was doing. He stopped for the hurting. He stopped for the blind. He stopped for the broken. Jesus was one of those. He was not rich. So he is walking among those people, ministering, serving to those people. But Jesus didn't show favoritism either. He looked at Matthew and he said, hey, Matthew, you've got wealth. Come on, follow me. Matthew left it behind and followed him. He, he looked at Zacchaeus and he got into Zacchaeus's house and he said, hey, Zacchaeus, you've got great wealth, man. You have stolen all of this. I want you to give it to the poor, to repent and give it all away. And Zacchaeus began to do that. He looked at Nicodemus, a religious leader, and he said, hey, Nicodemus, all this stuff that you know and that you think you've got together, let me just say it, it's that's, let me just be counter-religious for you for a second. You must be born again. And so Jesus looked at every man, every person. They had all together, or appeared they had all together, and for those that were broken and hurting. Jesus came and taught to change the idea of what kingdom looked like in this, in this economy. He didn't show that favoritism. But what did he do to all of them? He served them with grace and truth. He served them with grace and truth. I really do believe that if we seek to serve, we will be seen as different. If you seek to serve others, you're going to be seen as different. I think it's the most unnatural and probably the most difficult thing to do is to serve others in the common areas of our life. Whether that's home to children or spouse, to aging a parent, whatever that looks like, it's difficult. Maybe it's at school. Maybe it's at work. Maybe it's at the store. Maybe it's in just everyday life in your neighborhood. It's difficult to serve in those situations. You see, it's difficult to serve the ones who are most needy, isn't it? I mean, it just feels like they always come to me. It just feels like they always need something. Man, goodness, can they not just let up? It's just just difficult to serve the most needy. It's difficult to serve the ones who want or they can't reward us. They have no use in my life. Why would I serve them? Why would I go out of my way and do anything for them? I mean, they're not going to make me better. They can't reward me. It's difficult to serve those. It's difficult to serve the ones who get on our last nerve and jump up and down, isn't it? It's difficult. It's difficult to serve the ones that we just don't want to serve. It's difficult to serve others when we're so focused on ourselves. And see, we use, well, my personality really doesn't allow me to, you know, I mean, that's just not my my preference. And, you know, I mean, like, those are excuses. Serving others may not get you the position that you seek. Serving others may not get you the recognition that you feel like you won't. Serving others, it may not take make you the greatest, but it will model Jesus. It will model Jesus. And that's what Jesus was after. It's gonna lift others up. So one question for us today, as we close. Here's our question: What is our next step?